Welcome to The Analysis. I'm Colin Brusanthis. In a minute, we'll be taking a first look at Michael Hudson's new book, The Collapse of Antiquity. Uh, when the emperors canceled the debts, it was largely canceling the debts uh, of the wealthy, uh, sort of like the recent uh, ba ba bank bailouts of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and uh, uh, banks in the United States. Uh, the wealthy don't have to pay the debts, uh, but uh, the if you're not wealthy, you do have to pay the debts. That's the basic Roman principle, and that is uh, uh, what America calls democracy. Please remember to like, subscribe, ring the bell for notifications, consider hitting the donate button to support our work, and stay tuned. Dr. Michael Hudson has long brought historical clarity to political economy. In his books like Jay is for Junk Economics and Killing the Host, he showed how neoclassical economists morphed the terms of classical political economy into their opposite, creating markets that were free for rentiers rather than free from them. His research into the early practices of creating and forgiving debt were central to David Graeber's runaway hit, Debt the First 5,000 Years. Now Dr. Hudson is about to release a new book entitled The Collapse of Antiquity, looking at how practices that became problematic in the ancient Greek Empire and accelerated in the ancient Roman Empire led the Roman Empire to devolving into a rentier state and collapsing from within. It's a compelling trajectory that includes the ancient Greek philosophers and reformers, the assassination of Julius Caesar, the rise of Jesus, the inversion of Christianity, and the rewriting of the Lord's Prayer. But Dr. Hudson is not merely giving an historical account. He is also attacking a disturbing trend among contemporary classicists to sidestep the historical record on the battle between creditors and debtors following neoclassical economists as the same problems accelerate today. Dr. Hudson has been a professor in both the United States and China. He has advised governments, including in my own country of Canada. He has both worked on Wall Street and exposed the practices of Wall Street in great detail, and we are privileged to have a first look at his new book today. Michael Hudson, welcome back to The Analysis. Well, it's good to be back. Thanks for uh, having me. I thought a good way to begin would be to take a look at a couple of quotes that you cite in the book that are contrasting quotes from ancient sources, one's from Cicero and one's from Plutarch. And Cicero was very opposed to debt forgiveness, and Plutarch was very opposed to those who were collecting on debts. And I thought I'd have you comment on how this is a trend that echoes through the ages. So here's Cicero first. The men who administer public affairs must first of all see that everyone holds on to what is his, and that private men are never deprived of their goods by public acts. For political communities and citizenships were constituted especially so that men could hold on to what was theirs. Sounds a lot like the political establishment today. And here's Plutarch. The greed of creditors brings neither enjoyment nor profit to them and ruins those whom they wrong. They do not till the fields which they take from their debtors, nor do they live in their houses after evicting them. So do you want to comment on how those quotes reflect a battle that's been going on for several thousand years. Well, what Rome bequeathed to the uh, West was creditor-oriented law. And uh, that re really means the uh, financial claims of the oligarchy, the 1% uh, on the rest of the economy, instead of protecting the economy at large, uh, which is uh, very largely composed of debtors. So uh, the, uh, when you say you're supporting uh, uh, the rights of creditors, that means their rights to uh, deprive the uh, rest of the economy, their debtors, uh, of their liberty. And uh, that's sort of celebrated today as if that's individualism. 
but individualism, certainly Roman style, is not egalitarian. It's oligarchic. And uh, the uh, Roman idea of liberty was the privilege of the oligarchy to indebt and expropriate and deprive the uh, bulk of the population of its liberty, of its means of support, of its access uh, to the land. And that's what made classical antiquity so different from uh, the uh, 3,000 years that had gone before in uh, the ancient Near East, where there was the takeoff. Uh, in all the rest of the ancient Near East, uh, you had uh, rulers restoring uh, access to the land, canceling the debts, liberating the debt slaves. And while Greece and Rome were developing uh, from the uh, 7th century BC uh, to uh, the 1st century BC, uh, even in contemporary Babylonia, uh, you had very little uh, debt bondage. You did have slavery, largely uh, girls who were captured in the mountains. The uh, Sumerian and Babylonian word for slave is mountain girl, uh, but you didn't have debtors, uh, citizens, falling into bondage for their debtors irreversibly. Hmm. What Rome did was make this uh, loss of liberty, this dependency, this bondage irreversible and permanent. And that really is what made uh, the Western civilization different from everything that went before, and we're still in that period. Hmm. Can we go back a little bit before that and go into some of that stuff about Sumerian and Babylonian leaders regularly forgiving debt? And even there were attempts to kind of systemize that practice that we have records of. Right? Well, the uh, basically, the uh, Jewish uh, jubilee year of Leviticus 25 is word for word from the debt cancellations that Hammurabi's dynasty uh, proclaimed uh, early in the second millennium B.C., uh, uh, it was normal for uh, Sumerian, Babylonian, even Assyrian rulers of the uh, 7th century B.C. Uh, at the, around the time that trade was uh, revived with uh, uh, Greece and uh, Italy, uh, even they would uh, cancel the debts, liberate the bond servants, and uh, restore the lands that had been uh, turned over to creditors. Uh, because rulers saw that if they did not uh, uh, proclaim this uh, debt cancellation and rest of normal economic relationships, then uh, the debtors would owe their labor to the creditors, and they'd have to work on the creditor's land and the creditor's estate, and finally they'd lose the land to the creditors. Well, if they did that, they wouldn't be able to work on infrastructure projects, uh, corvée labor, uh, and they wouldn't be able to serve in the army. So uh, they had to keep restoring normal citizen uh, uh, ship rights and the citizenship rights before Greece and Rome included uh, a guaranteed uh, access to uh, the land uh, and self-support. So if you're looking at it, say in the terms of Karl Polanyi, uh, land was not commodified, uh, labor was not commodified, and money and debt really were not commodified beyond a, a temporary uh, transfer. Uh, and uh, you had a continual economic renewal uh, and growth in the Near East. And uh, Rome and uh, Greece stopped that process of economic renewal. And more and more of the population fell into bondage. And uh, the economy polarized. And uh, the result was uh, the Roman Empire. And we all know where that led. Right. And so with that, you're saying there is both this element of 
sort of fairness citizenship that comes into debt forgiveness, but also like pure pragmatics, the 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 real economy cannot flourish unless you have these periods in which the question of debt is addressed. Yes, that's exactly right. Modern uh, ideology thinks that, well, uh, you have Western democracy, uh, Greece, Rome, and today the United States, as opposed to other countries, and they're called autocracies, uh, right. meaning uh, just a single rulers. But uh, th there was one virtue that uh, kingship had in the ancient Near East, uh, and that was uh, the ability to prevent a domestic oligarchy from developing. Uh, when Greece and Rome uh, were sort of opened up to trade in the uh, 8th century BC, uh, they uh, had chieftains, but they didn't have any independent rulers. There was no independent palace, no independent temples. Uh, and so the chieftains became uh, the oligarchs, basically, without any external uh, external check on uh, their aggrandizement. And uh, very quickly, you had a certain, uh, both in uh, Greece and the Italian cities, you had mafia-like uh, lo local uh, city-states uh, taking over. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, in, in Italy, uh, the situation was so bad that uh, people, uh, there was a lot of flight from the land. Uh, people didn't want a mafia-type state taking over. And uh, a lot of them went to Rome because uh, Rome uh, uh, wanted to attract immigrants. It, 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 labor was still the short uh, supply uh, factor in uh, the 8th and 7th and 6th centuries BC. Everybody wanted labor. And in order to attract labor to your land, uh, you had to give it uh, uh, some degree of uh, freedom, uh, uh, not bondage. And uh, uh, in Greece, you had uh, reformers overthrow the mafia states, and uh, they were called tyrants. And tyrant wasn't originally a bad word. Uh, it was, I think, taken over from the Persian and just meant uh, the person in control. And uh, the uh, people in control, uh, so-called tyrants, paved the way for democracy by getting rid of the uh, sort of uh, aut autocratic uh, uh, leaders and canceling debts and redistributing the land. That was uh, basically what tyrants did. And it seems to be, according to the Roman historians, what the early Roman kings did. Uh, they'd, uh, they'd support the, the debtors, uh, in, or, in other words, the population at large. Uh, they didn't want a takeover by a small group of people. So this is very interesting because that term tyrant um, comes to mean something, of course, very with with a very negative connotation. But really, what we're talking about are people who had appeals to the population and could therefore challenge the system. Well, the 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 word in the linguistics is very much like today when President Biden says that uh, the world is dividing in the next twenty years between democracy and autocracy. What he means by democracy is uh, what Aristotle called oligarchy. Aristotle said democracies turn into oligarchy. So uh, uh, Biden is really saying it's uh, oligarchy versus uh, autocracy. And what he means by autocracy is what the Romans meant by kingship and the Greeks meant by, uh, by uh, tyranny. And that means a strong government, strong enough to prevent a creditor oligarchy from emerging and taking over the land and expropriating 
the economy and reducing it uh, to serfdom. Uh, you need a mixed economy. You need a public sector and a private sector uh, to uh, act together. And the role of the government is to prevent the private sector from polarizing society in a way that imposes austerity. Well, that's exactly uh, uh, the, the usage that you found in uh, uh, Greek and Roman rhetoric against kingship and uh, 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 tyranny is exactly what uh, you find today in the speeches of uh, uh, the American uh, State Department. So we see, and, and as we get into Rome, we're going to look at how the way they set up the Senate was uh, very class oriented. It was basically a, it was basically a class dictatorship. Um, but uh, or did you want to comment on that before I? No, it, it, uh, voting was uh, weighted according to how much wealth and land you had and later how much wealth. And each uh, room was the uh, voting classes were divided into uh, wealth groups. And uh, the wealthiest, uh, the small wealthy classes were given such a heavy voting weight that uh, the three or four wealthiest uh, classes, still maybe one or two or three percent, uh, could outvote uh, the whole population at large. Uh, today, we do it by campaign contributions. Uh, we've, private, we've also privatized the electoral system, uh, but we don't let the wealthy people uh, votes uh, count more than uh, the votes of anyone else. We just let the wealthy people contribute more money <laughs> to an, anyone else to the political campaign. So uh, we're doing our best to emulate uh, the Roman constitution. <laughs> Um, let's uh, take a little bit more of a look at that rise of tyrants and the, the way that this reflected that kind of a conflict. You say that interest-bearing debt did not really take hold in Greece until about the 8th century BC. Um, and then we have this series of tyrants who can continuously challenge the system, and their reforms were almost always centered around at least some form of debt, debt cancellation and land redistribution. Those are the common elements, correct? Yes, and uh, that also uh, was exactly uh, the same program that uh, uh, the Jubilee uh, had uh, under mm -hmm. Judaism. Uh, and you can imagine the problem that uh, modern civilization has and that, that Rome had uh, once, uh, once uh, Constantine made uh, Christianity the uh, uh, official Roman religion, how are you going to make the official Roman religion uh, uh, what Jesus was talking about in his first sermon? Where right. he, uh, he said he, he had come to restore the Jubilee year. Well, obviously it was all changed. I guess we'll get to that later at the end of the discussion. But this is where we're, we're, all of these dots are going to connect. But of course, uh, this was, as as you write in this book, this was a lot of the push towards as much as we think of tyranny today, because of the way these terms have changed over time, as the opposite of democracy. This was really the driving force towards the development of democratic systems in ancient Greece. Yes. The question is, what is democracy? Uh, and Aristotle uh, put uh, forth a whole idea that there was a, a, a circular triangular flow uh, eternally. Uh, he said originally there was a people were under autocracy uh, and then uh, some of the wealthy uh, families emerged, usually uh, the minor aristocracy uh, as it was in uh, uh, the early Greek city-states and uh, they break and they take the people into their camp. Uh, and uh, that's what Cleisthenes did in uh, Athens in uh, 
506 BC, uh, and then uh, they established democracy. But within democracy, uh, some people get richer than others, and democracy evolves into oligarchy. And uh, Aristotle said that there are many constitutions that call themselves democracy, but they're really oligarchy. Uh, mm. He didn't uh, mention the American Constitution because it wasn't uh, written yet, uh, but I think the same principle gets and uh, applies. And then he said, then the oligarchy uh, makes itself uh, hereditary into an aristocracy, uh, and uh, life polarizes until finally uh, some of members uh, of the uh, uh, aristocracy, hereditary aristocracy say, uh, we're, we're killing the whole economy and we're going to uh, never be able to uh, fight and win wars if we don't uh, uh, lighten up. And uh, they uh, have a democratic revolution, restore uh, democracy, and you have the same cycle again and again and again. That was his view of history. As we go into these ancient Greek philosophers and, and we see those warnings from Aristotle and his particular concerns about democracy and about oligarchy, and we see also Plato and the Republic and, and you know, Socrates was his mouthpiece, his character in, in those writings, but perhaps this could be traced back to Socrates' own, own visions. They were, these were not people who were necessarily revolutionaries. They were kind of uh, affiliated with the aristocratic classes themselves in many ways, but they saw the pursuit of an addiction to wealth as being kind of the main corrupter and the destroyer of 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 society. Well, that that's right. That was uh, the common denominator in the plays of Aristophanes, uh, in uh, so Socrates and Plato uh, dialogues. Uh, the com uh, it was sort of the politically correct thing to do to say greed is bad, uh, and uh, we don't want to have a wealth addiction, and yet. Society was wealth addicted. There was a basic uh, hypocrisy uh, in the ideology of the ruling class that was uh, very egalitarian among each other. Uh, but uh, uh, the fact is that they were all uh, addicted. And uh, so what you had was uh, a much uh, more sophisticated economic uh, theory uh, in antiquity uh, than you have today. Uh, all of today's economic models are based on diminishing marginal utility. Uh, if you uh, have a, a banana uh, then uh, uh, the next banana you eat is going to be worse. And by the time you have your 10th banana in a row, you're really sick of bananas. Uh, and so that's uh, uh, supposedly the more you have, uh, the less uh, uh, you want. But uh, what, uh, look the, that way. <laughs> what Aristotle and, uh, uh, said and Aristophanes was that wealth is addictive. And again and again in Aristophanes' plays, and I quote them in the book, uh, the, the more money you have, the more you want. And uh, money is addictive uh, in contrast to uh, 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 to food and other things. Somehow that wealth addiction does not play a role in uh, the utility theory that is taught to uh, economic students is uh, the basic premise on which uh, economic models are based. And so there's no idea that uh, you can have wealthy people uh, come in and try to uh, addict uh, try to uh, take over the economy uh, out of uh, a rising uh, egoism. Right. And uh, th even before that, and uh, you, uh, to bring back Babylonia, uh, the Babylonians had a mathematical model that was far superior to any mathematical model that's used anywhere in, in uh, the United States or the Western world. Uh, 
And it was a very simple model. They, uh, on the one hand, and we know what it was because we have the textbooks that scribes were taught uh, around uh, 1800 BC. And the first uh, mathematical uh, exercise of uh, Babylonian scribes was uh, how long does it take a debt to double? Uh, any debt, uh, interest-bearing debt, is a doubling time. And they found that's exponential growth, doubling, 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 and that's the S-curve. It's wow. an exponential upsweep curve. Uh, but And they also had quotes for uh, or studies of uh, calculate the growth of a herd. Uh, that was sort of a proxy for the economy. And the growth of a herd grew, sort of sta uh, tapered off in an S-curve. Uh, like, like you have today. So what the Babylonians realized uh, and the whole Near Eastern realized is that the mathematics of debt uh, are different from the mathematics that describe uh, the economy of production and consumption. Debt grows uh, exponentially and inexorably an excess of the uh, real economy's ability to grow. And uh, so the job of uh, a ruler uh, is to restore order by bringing debts back in line with the ability to pay. Right. Nothing like this occurred in Greece and Rome. When uh, people couldn't pay, they lost their land and they lost their liberty and uh, they fell into bondage to uh, their creditors. Uh, and uh, that's what made Western civilization so different from uh, uh, the, uh, the rest of the world up to that time. That's absolutely fascinating because it's not only saying that, that debt has a problematic character to it or that, you know, sometimes you have a crisis. Uh, it's actually saying that this is something that is that has to recurringly be taken care of. This is going to be a recurring issue. Debt is going to eat the real economy if we do not have a regular intervention. That's exactly right. Let's take, um, I'd actually like to go a little further into this, uh, what Plato was talking about with Socrates, because Socrates, the character of Socrates in the Republic um, is very kind of antagonistic towards democracy in some ways. He sees a sort of slippery slope with democracy, which you, you kind of uh, talked a little bit, uh, hinted towards already. But he believes that basically you need politicians who are kind of without without really funding in a way or without being other than a kind of basic um, income, uh, they shouldn't be uh, really in the world of trying to accumulate wealth. Well, the, the whole setting for Plato's Republic uh, has been pretty much uh, misrepresented. Uh, mm. I went to the University of Chicago as an undergraduate, and uh, uh, much of our uh, organ, uh, my favorite course was Organizations, Methods, and Principles of Knowledge, OMP. And uh, we all had to uh, study the Republic. And uh, uh, when I was, I, I, I was about 17 years old at the time, and uh, the talk at that time, they acted as if, Socrates was talking about uh, a, uh, a a noble king or a noble uh, despotism or his uh, uh, is, is, uh, guiders. Well, uh, that really is misrepresents what Socrates was saying. Socrates, yeah. the whole Republic begins by uh, uh, saying uh, Socrates asking someone, uh, "Should you repay the debts that you owe somebody?" And Socrates, well, what if somebody borrows uh, a weapon 
from a uh, very uh, uh, destructive, uh, aggressive person. And you borrowed it. And uh, should you give your uh, sword or your weapon back to the person that you've borrowed it from? Uh, because if you do, he's a violent person. And he's going to do something with the weapon. Maybe uh, you, uh, is it really right to uh, repay him? Uh, and uh, he said, uh, uh, well, no. The uh, person he's talking to says no. And then Socrates will say, said, well, what if you borrow money from him and you uh, uh, pay your debt to him? And he uses this debt just like uh, a uh, egotistical, uh, violent person will use uh, a weapon. And he uses the debt to take away your freedom to uh, take away your land, to uh, essentially do to you uh, what he would uh, do with a weapon. And in fact, uh, there have been a lot of political assassinations. Is that right? And uh, the uh, uh, student he's talking to gets a little confused. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Socrates said, well, uh, here's the problem. Uh, we, we, uh, the, uh, most of the rulers today are the creditors, the rulers, uh, the, the politicians who uh, get elected and uh, uh, who run most cities are from the leading families. They're the richest families. They're the creditors. And uh, being creditors, uh, they're going to act in their own self-interest and they're going to promote a creditor-oriented law. And uh, this is going to destroy society. So is this really right? Uh, and then he, uh, he comes up with uh, what seems to be a uh, uh, an impossibility. He said, well, I guess what we need would be uh, the guardians. Uh, the uh, This was the noble despot, the, the guardians of the state would be people who didn't have uh, uh, property of their own, who didn't have a lot of money of their own. And not having money and property, they're not wealth addicted. And not being wealth addicted, they're uh, willing to try to develop society as a whole. Uh, and what's good for the overall society growing instead of what's good for me in getting my power by taking away your liberty and uh, monopolizing all the wealth uh, in my own hands and those of my fellow oligarchs uh, who are uh, running society. So uh, that is really what the Republic is all about. And Socrates made it just as clear as he could. And so did Aristophanes uh, in the plays that he was writing at this time. And somehow none of that got into uh, uh, the curriculum that I learned as a uh, uh, undergraduate at the University of Chicago, hardly by surprise. Well, I have to say that um, I'm, unfortunately, uh, the way that, that that text was introduced to me was in much the same way that it was introduced to you. So I wish that that had changed more over the years than it has, but maybe people watching this video will uh, will change that moving forward. Um, you mentioned assassinations. I suppose that's a good place to segue into Rome. So let's go into to ancient Rome and let's talk about um, this foundation of pro-creditor laws that really plague it for uh, about a millennia until it really finally collapses without much resistance. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that foundation was going around 500 BC? In 506 BC, uh, you had the uh, oligarchy getting together and overthrowing the kingship. Uh, 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 there's a sort of uh, not that good uh, uh, documentation from this period, but it seems that uh, most of the Roman historians uh, said that uh, while Rome was letting uh, people come from uh, other cities uh, uh, to join Rome, uh, not only did uh, 
cultivators and uh, uh, peasants uh, uh, come to Rome, but also uh, some aristocrats uh, came to Rome, uh, uh, especially some aristocrats who couldn't take over their own cities and came to Rome. And they uh, tried to get all the aristocrats together. And they said, we don't, uh, kings are not letting us uh, uh, make money off uh, the rest of the economy. So uh, they overthrew the kings uh, and said, uh, we're restoring uh, uh, kingship. And uh, this was the whole myth of the uh, the rape of Lucretia. Uh, the last uh, king of Rome uh, was accused of raping uh, the uh, daughter of uh, uh, one of his uh, uh, friends. And uh, the, uh, the aristocrats got so upset at this overreaching sexual aggression of kings that they overthrew them and uh, they restored liberty. Well, what they restored was the ability of uh, the aristocrats to uh, reduce uh, clients to slavery and rape their wives and daughters, uh, uh, just the opposite of what happened. Well, uh, they took over and immediately uh, they, uh, the uh, aristocracy reversed everything the kings had tried to do and ruled with an iron hand. Uh, the Romans had enough class consciousness uh, that they withdrew from the city. They said, well, okay, uh, these are not uh, the rules of the Rome that we joined. Uh, they had a secession of the plebs uh, around 490 BC. And uh, they they just walked out until uh, the, uh, finally there was a, a negotiation of, of what kind of political structure Rome would have. And they, they created uh, uh, officials who were supposed to at least uh, protect the plebs, but uh, uh, the plebeians. Uh, but it really wasn't uh, uh, a, a very good deal because uh, 50 years later, uh, they, they, there was still so much abuse by the aristocracy, the, the oligarchy uh, yet, not quite an aristocracy yet, uh, that they the judges were all uh, basically the uh, the wealthy people. And so the Romans insisted the laws be written down, uh, not led to the ju uh, judges. It had to be the rule of law, not just the autocratic rule of uh, the wealthy people who controlled uh, the judgeship. So uh, the, these were the 12 tables uh, that were written down that uh, set a maximum uh, interest rate uh, and uh, various rules. And uh, uh, the uh, uh, almost Immediately, the uh, oligarchy simply refused to obey them and said, okay, these are the rules. What are you going to do about it? Uh, it's sort of like the United States saying, uh, we want uh, the rules-based order, not the rule of law. Uh, that was <laughs> that could have been the slogan of the oligarchy, uh, but they didn't have a uh, President Biden uh, to put it quite that way. Uh, but the result was uh, for the next uh, the next five centuries, uh, again and again, uh, you would have uh, leading uh, uh, patricians, uh, the wealthy people, and then uh, leading plebeians. Uh, many uh, official plebeian families also became very wealthy, and you'd have political leaders who uh, tried to. Uh, protect the economic role of debtors uh, to prevent people from falling into bondage uh, and, in fact, to ban uh, uh, debt slavery uh, when they were uh, particular, uh, uh, particular abusive uh, examples that uh, got the population riled up. So uh, basically, you just had the uh, what seemed to be a nice uh, paper constitution and paper laws uh, just uh, being autocratically administered uh, 
sort of like trying to oppose, trying to apply the law in New York City courts. Uh, good luck. Uh, it didn't get very far. And uh, uh, all of this basically uh, began to polarize after uh, about uh, 200 BC when uh, uh, Rome conquered uh, the Greek world uh, and absorbed uh, Greece and uh, went on in around 150 BC to uh, destroy Carthage and uh, uh, conquer Greece all over again. And uh, uh, you had, uh, uh, at that point, already in the second century BC, you had Rome uh, developing into an empire. Uh, and it really began uh, in the second century. And uh, because it was impoverishing its own population, the character of the army uh, changed and it became more or less a mercenary army uh, that was loyal to its generals. And you had uh, the usual kind of infighting between uh, right-wing oligarchs and uh, uh, more populist uh, oligarchs. And uh, uh, each of them became uh, generals commanding opposing armies, uh, and you had uh, civil war, really, from, uh, you could say, from uh, 133 BC uh, on to uh, uh, the er eruption uh, with the uh, Catiline uh, organizing an army of debtors to try to cancel debts, and he lost. Uh, uh, he'd been sponsored uh, somewhat by Julius Caesar, and finally Julius Caesar came back, and even though uh, his first act was, was to cancel the debts, of the rich people, but not of the uh, as his class, uh, but not of the people uh, as a whole. Uh, there was general fear of the by the oligarchy that Caesar was actually going to cancel the debts of the poor people as well, not just other rich people. And uh, uh, they killed him, and there was a long uh, fight for succession, and uh, uh, you had. Uh, the empire really taking over under uh, uh, Octavian, uh, Caesar's adopted nephew, who became uh, uh, Augustus. Right, and and you you write in this book something that that's very clear in this book is that Rome was different in character in a few different ways. Uh, one was that it was really based it was it was based on a kind of war economy and the appropriation of land continuously because it was not rooted in supporting a domestic economy. Yes, it, it basically made its uh, money by uh, conquering other regions and looting them. Uh, it would impose tribute. Uh, the, the wealthiest part of the Roman Empire for uh, many years uh, was uh, Asia Minor, uh, what is now Turkey. Uh, and uh, you had uh, almost uh, decade after decade of war by uh, the uh, leader from uh, Pontus on the Black Sea, Mithridates, uh, waged a war against uh, uh, the Romans, uh, who uh, collected by uh, th their tax collectors were called publicans or publicani. Uh, the agents. And uh, uh, things got so bad uh, that around 88 BC, uh, there was uh, the uh, the Vespers of Ephesus, uh, the Near East, all over uh, the Ephesus and Near Eastern cities, the Near Easterns uh, rose up and uh, they killed almost every Roman they could find and every Italian uh, who came uh, with them, uh, except for the few Romans who'd supported local rights and uh, 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 went native, as it were, uh, such as Lucellus, who was a very good guy. Uh, and uh, Rome just came back and uh, essentially looted the temples. Uh, there was no rule of law at all. And uh, the phrase was, where the publicans go, the rule of law ends. 
very much like the United States went uh, took over uh, Russia in the 1990s. It was looted. And uh, th by the first century AD, uh, one third of all of the Roman Empire uh, revenues uh, came from tariffs uh, imposed on trade with Egypt. Uh, so uh, Egypt, along with Asia Minor, uh, remained the, the large part of the Roman Empire that was essentially using its revenue uh, just uh, to hire mercenaries. And uh, uh, increasingly, it, uh, uh, it, uh, hire, it moved into uh, Europe north of the Alps and uh, uh, began to hire Germanic uh, tribes as, uh, uh, as fighters for it. Usually, the generals began to fight against each other. Uh, and uh, the, each of them wanted to be empire uh, emperor, and uh, they would hire the tribes. And finally, uh, you by about the fifth century, uh, the uh, the empire uh, simply dissolved. And uh, all, uh, th there was already in the third century that was supposed to be the golden age of emperors' ships. Uh, the taxation of uh, the areas controlled by Rome was so great that uh, you had the emperors finally doing uh, what seemed to be what the Near Eastern rulers were doing. Uh, they'd canceled the debts. Well, the debts they canceled were mainly tax debts. Uh, because uh, the economy was so heavily indebted that people couldn't afford to borrow anymore. The mm. only people who could afford to borrow were uh, wealthy people from each other. And the main cause of uh, borrowing was uh, to pay the taxes that uh, Rome insisted upon. So uh, when the emperors canceled the debts, it was largely canceling the debts uh, of the wealthy, uh, sort of like the recent uh, bank bailouts of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and uh, uh, banks in the United States. Uh, the wealthy don't have to pay the debts, uh, but uh, the if you're not wealthy, you do have to pay the debts. That's the basic Roman principle, and that is uh, uh, what America calls democracy. Yeah, that looks a lot like on a massive scale, and we're seeing it on a massive scale, uh, what Socrates said about giving a weapon back to someone who's become a lunatic. Indeed. We'll be right back with part two of our conversation with Dr. Michael Hudson on the fall of the Roman Empire and its implications for contemporary political economy. Thanks for watching. We'll see you soon.